Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everybody, this is Lou Nash. And this is Ella Gordon-Latty. And together we welcome you to the redesign of everything. Where we will be talking to the global changemakers, the designers and the practitioners who are helping to redesign a better future for us all. We'll be giving you not only the inspiration, but also the tools to redesign your world for the better. Design is the single most important force in building a thriving future for us all. A future that's more regenerative, more resilient and more circular by design. So let's share these stories and insights gleaned from our guests at the front line of this transformation. Thank you for being here and for listening, because together we really can redesign everything. Joining us today is Brian Shaw from Metabolic, talking about the redesign of everything. Now, we've been an admirer of Metabolic's work for some time now, particularly because, like circularity, it uses systems thinking to tackle global sustainability challenges. So when Brian confirmed he could join us today, we were absolutely thrilled. Brian's activism, academic and advisory work has focused on affecting social and systemic change, from food startups to teaching degrowth to using theatre to shift mindsets, Brian has used an interdisciplinary approach to achieving this goal. He grew up in Ireland and his background lies in forestry where he learned how to understand and manage complex adaptive systems for sustainable outcomes. At Metabolic, an ecosystem of organisations whose mission it is to transform the global economy, Brian leads the agri-food and biodiversity team. Welcome Brian. Where in the world are you calling from today? Hi Ella, hi Louise. I am calling from Amsterdam at the moment, a grey Amsterdam. Welcome from Amsterdam, Brian. Now, at the start of each interview, we like to ask our guests a big open-ended question. What actually does the redesign of everything mean to you? It's uh, certainly a big question, a super interesting one, when we think about what we're trying to achieve uh, with, with the circular economy, with sustainability work in general. I think there's, you know, you can think about elements of technical redesign, product redesign. So how do we make a car that runs on petrol run on uh, electricity or how do we uh, redesign the way that we might um, have ownership of the car? Maybe we could lease it. So redesigning business models. But and all of these things are really important and interesting. But I, I feel like one of the key levers is actually the redesigning of, of our consciousness. You know, how do we change the way we think about things? as individuals, but in how we, we use our values or values we have uh, that drive our behavior and how we consume, um, how we, we want the world to function for us and how we can redesign our relationship with the world. For me, this is this is sort of the meta question of, of redesigning everything, which I think is, yeah, something that you guys are probably also thinking a lot about too, right? Absolutely. You know, although you are in Amsterdam, you can tell you're Irish and you grew up in a small town <laughs> in Ireland. <laughs> Can you share with us how your upbringing influenced your thinking, approached the challenges we face today in the world, but also, to your point, your values and your state of consciousness that leads you to do the work you do? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I grew up in, uh, in, in uh, luckily enough, in a, in a relatively uh, beautiful part of Ireland, um, so between the hills and the sea. I guess in New Zealand you can relate to it. And I was always looking 
at the hills behind where I grew up and there was these forestry plantations. And they would be clear-cutting them and replanting them and clear-cutting them and replanting them. And people would always be complaining about these these, these sort of uh, monocultures. And I was hiking there and you would see that there were dead zones and that there was nothing really going on beyond sheep and maybe a few crows. And then you would also have these like, really biodiverse, more native broadleaf forests which were then, you know, full of chirping birds and water running through them and mosses and all this stuff. And I was always thinking, why are we structurally, uh, through policy, delivering these monocultures on the hills uh, of Ireland instead of, you know, going for something a bit more ambitious, a bit more holistic, that's, you know, providing lots of different things instead of just timber for houses. And that kind of took me on a journey through studying agricultural science, studying land use science, uh, forestry, I kind of got away from that sort of <laughs> monoculture or, or sort of diverse forest into thinking then a bit more about landscapes. How does the forest fit together with the agriculture? How do people relate to these forests, to the landscape? What does the landscape give to people? What do people give to the landscape? And I kind of kept zooming out and zooming out. And as I was tunneling into this, thinking about, well, there's there's obviously, we have to think about these things systemically. We need the resources as a society what's driving the way we think about these resources, what's driving the way that we use them, and how can we think about all of these things in a way which produces multiple services to society? How can people's cultural identity be protected, the connection to the landscape, at the same time as being able to have jobs within it, at the same time as being able to produce materials? And so that's kind of that systemic, let's do things in a more inclusive, holistic way, part of it. And then, yeah, on the values, I think that's it. I mean, how much time do we have? But <laughs> I guess, I guess with the values, yeah, you want stewardship is important and mm. integrity. You you really want to be, leave things in a state better than what you found them. And at the moment, we're doing the opposite, right, as a society. Yeah, couldn't agree more with so many of things that you said there, Brian. Just something I want to touch upon, just because it's of my interest to me too is the concept of a forest and how a forest works together. And there was a couple mm. of really amazing articles that I read through Drawdown um, that, that then took me on kind of a research journey around some amazing um, TEDx videos and things like that. And one thing stood out for me really clearly was this idea of what goes beneath the ground, what goes on beneath the ground in terms of the, the network effect of forests and trees working together. And one study mm. that I read about, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, was that they put, I don't know whether it was a paper bag, but a bag over one tree next to another tree that obviously was clear and growing per normal. And they actually tested that that tree without the bag all over it was sending nutrition and food and light of photosynthesis mm -hmm. through to the other tree. It, would, it had actually communicated underneath to know that that other tree was needing that help. Um, have you got anything to kind of share and add to that? Or did I did I get it right? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. No, no, for sure. Um, it's 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 really interesting. Absolutely. So I, I have. Uh, it's it's really this web of life thing. Yes. That, that of course we don't we don't see below the soil, right? And then to the untrained eye, you kick you kick your boot into the soil and you just have muck or whatever. Um, but obviously, um, in in a forestry context when you when we would be uh, in the forest cutting down trees um you would have an old stump and actually if you kick at the stump a bit at the top of it where it looks dead you see that it's actually part of it is still living because even though you've taken the so this is not just putting a bag over something but this is actually chopping its head off 
And because the roots of that tree are intertwined either with the roots of the neighboring trees or through a vast and sort of dense network of, of uh, fungi that are below the soil that connect to the roots and they have these symbiotic uh, relationships. So the fungus basically breaks down stuff in the soil and gives it to the trees and then in return the trees give the fungus sugar. So this is like a relationship, a cooperation that they have together. And most trees have this and most plants have this. And between the roots connecting to each other and actually fusing together and between the fungus, there indeed are these, these connections. And, and I believe they use some sort of, I'm not sure now, I'm maybe stepping outside of my technical sphere, but some <laughs> sort of pheromonal uh, communication between yes. them. And I mean, we, we project as, as people this altruistic, the trees protecting the tree beside it sort of narrative, right? Yeah, maybe it's enough to say that this structure and this network exists and one of the outcomes of this of this is that there's this exchange of materials, of, of energy, of sugars um, and, and minerals and these sorts of things which happen to keep that tree alive after it's been chopped down, basically. Mm, um, it's just fascinating, yeah. the web of life. You coined it well. And I, I hate to get really meta about it, but <laughs> you can see that that kind of web of life is actually really reflected in our economy but we just can't see it. All of our operations do mimic that, that that waste has to go somewhere and it will have knock-on effects. Mm. And that's what I love about so much of the circular economy work that gets done. It's about servicing all of that and redesigning it. And Metabolic is a world leader in the circular economy space. And so we would love if you could share with our listeners a bit more about the work that Metabolic does. Yeah, sure. So... I mean, the short-ish story is Metabolic was started in 2012 by Eva Gladek, our CEO. And the idea was to address the most pressing societal issues or sustainability issues. And I guess in the last, what's from 2012 now, nine years almost, it's grown into this um, ecosystem. We call it an ecosystem and we have five entities. Mm. Overarching mission of the, of the ecosystem is to transform the global economy to a fundamentally sustainable state as quickly as possible. Um, and then we, we have these different entities which approach this question in, in different ways. That just sounds amazing, Brian. I mean, I know I've been following the progress of Metabolic for a little while and um, it's incredible to hear where it's landed now and how it's morphed into these different areas. This podcast is delivered to you by Circularity, a circular transformation agency working with a new breed of organisations and change makers to solve the environmental challenges of business as usual. We use circular practices to unlock innovation that is better for both people and the planet. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head to our website, circularity.co.nz. Brian, I'm going to drill a little bit into your specific role within Metabolic mm. and thinking about agriculture, obviously a big industry here for New Zealand and we know feeds the world and the whole you know, agri-food is simply the food that's produced by agriculture. Food production, as we know, is one of the major drivers of environmental impact around the world, like biodiversity loss, climate change and water use. And as the world's largest economic sector, it's also deeply entwined with poverty challenges. And we've got this huge global food demand, which is set to increase as much by 40% by 2050. So we have this mm. really complex road ahead of us, lots of challenges, lots of opportunities. As the lead at Metabolic for agri-food and biodiversity, how do, you know, what role do you play in tackling these challenges and bringing forth solutions? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you laid it out pretty well. But I think it, it, the food system is really nice to think about because – 
and you could argue this about most of the different sorts of uh, economic systems that we have, but food we really need. It's it's a clearly fundamental part of our continuing existence. And it's also, as you said, one of the largest drivers of, of climate change, of biodiversity loss, the largest driver of biodiversity, the biggest user of water in the world. Um, it's the biggest driver of soil pollution and erosion, biggest employer, like you said. And so we're, we're kind of stuck in this yeah, this context. We, we need to continue to have the system, um, but we also need the system to change if we're going to come out the other end as a sustainable society, coexisting with the other creatures and, and nature on the planet. And so what we do is we, we, we work in three ways, I usually say. One is working with um, the public sector, so working with cities to help them define a, a vision and uh, implement a vision for a, for a food system, a local and resilient food system. Second is working with NGOs, um, and NGOs are primarily interested in things like biodiversity conservation or tackling climate change, and we partner with them to develop methodologies and tools uh, which can help them in that work. And then the third part is really working with the private sector, which is, I would say, the, the meat of the work that, that we do on the agri-food and biodiversity team. And that's because if you think about the food system, you have all of us consumers, we, you have then all of the agriculturalists, all the farmers who are producing food, and then you have the bit in the middle, the pipeline between the two. And there's obviously billions of us eating food, and there's obviously billions of farmers in the world. It's the biggest sector. But in the middle, it's actually not that big. So there's a huge concentration in the middle, and it, it looks like an hourglass, actually. And so what we do is we focus our attention at these biggest players and most influential players in the hourglass and help them to understand how they can be part of that sustainable transition to a, to a food system, which is working for everybody, working for nature, delivering value, not just to these people at the pinch point of the hourglass, but also healthy food to people, um, more resilience, better, better deals for the farmers, um, better deal for the environment. Um, and we use a systematic approach. We use data science. So you're an organization. Uh, what are you doing in the world? How can we understand this and put all this together into one picture so you can really understand where should you be focusing your attention? If you want to be reducing your environmental impact or you want to be um, getting the best bang from your, for your book, capturing 80% um, and making it better, where should you be doing this? And it's always the first step is to look at what's going on now. Um, this is what we call a contextual analysis. And once you have this with any company, you say, okay, well, you know where you are now. We have a good understanding of it. Where do you want to go? So what are the options here? Um, how should we develop a pathway to do some of these things you're doing? better. And once we have that pathway, then we think about feasibility again, impact of different options within that. And then we work with them to, to implement. So it's really a, a structured, focused, targeted approach to really driving the change in the system uh, through these different mm. uh, entry points. I thought as a passionate consumer of alternative milks, it would be mm. awesome if you could, I guess, illustrate how that method comes to life, focusing on the All Pro Pilot project that mm. really pioneered some of the development of that science-based target for plant-based food and drink producers. I'd love to touch on this because I think this really gets to the heart of some of the com consumer pain points around product of going, you know, I've chosen not to drink cow's milk, but I want almond, but I hear it's really bad, but soy's mm. bad too, so it ends up being really, really confusing. But, you know, that happens at a, at a business level too, so I'd love to hear about how that went with Alpro. 
Yeah, definitely. That's um, it's one of the the funny things. Well, it's not funny, but uh, interesting things is that exactly like you say, there's there's this sort of we don't call it. It's not misinformation, right? But these things are complex and. One of the things that I guess we try to do is help to reduce or not simplify, but communicate the complexity in a way which can help people make decisions. And exactly this question of like, well, I shouldn't be drinking almond milk because of all the bees in California, or I shouldn't be drinking soy because of the deforestation. And in the same way that a consumer has this, yeah, can have this lack of clarity on, on how they can be making better decisions, companies are faced exactly with the same thing. So we worked with Alpro in their almond and soy supply chains, uh, which are primarily in the Mediterranean and in Northern Europe, to help them understand, okay, what are the, the key critical issues, environmental issues with these supply chains? So with the production of their soy and the production of their almond milk, and how can they work to make to reduce this impact? For Alpro and for the whole food system, it's really about being within planetary boundaries. So at a planetary scale, the planetary boundaries, it's the life support system of the planet. Climate change, biodiversity, freshwater availability, soils and land, etc. There's nine of them in total. And these were defined by the Stockholm Resilience Centre to say that, well, if we can keep these systems in check, then we have a good chance of keeping the environment in check uh, and, and, and being sustainable as a society. So with Alpro, the idea was, okay, at a planetary scale, the boundaries are documented in the scientific community. But what does this mean for a company? How can they think about the planetary boundaries and do their part to to keep uh, within the planetary boundaries? So we assessed a bunch of their farms in their soy supply chains and in their almond supply chains. And we found that, well, actually, they're doing quite well in some areas, but they're doing not so well in other areas. And one of the key issues was nutrient leakage. So they were applying too much fertilizer. There's too much nutrients getting into the soil and into the water. And when this happens in the water, you have fish die off, um, you have algal blooms, these sorts of things. And in the soil, it's a it's a slower but somehow a more dangerous process because you don't really see it, much like the, the mycorrhizal networks. But it, it slowly degrades the soil and reduces the, the fertility of the soil. And over time, this becomes a real problem. So we, we understood this about these uh, production systems. And now we're working with them and working with uh, their farmers on a follow-up project to say, okay, well, what can we do about this? And the point here is really farm by farm, landscape by landscape, you're going to have slightly different recommendations because we always try to understand the relationship of the farm and the environment, the farm and the landscape. And so you can't say to Alpro, all of your almond farms should be like this. It's rather like, okay, what's the local context and what are the decisions that we should be making for each of them to make sure that they stay within the planetary boundaries. Now more than ever, businesses are being forced to rethink how they operate. And Circularity is here to help. We run workshops that bring your organisation, industry or community together. You may wish to gain an introduction to the circular economy opportunity, have a masterclass on creative closed-loop systems for your materials, or think about how you can change behaviours, develop circular business models, or even explore potential impact territories for your brand. Our facilitators at Circularity design and deliver immersive experiences that defy convention and demand engagement. You find the time and we will make the most of it. We build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. Reach out via our website, circularity.co.nz. I mean, if a lot of different organisations in the world were following this type of approach, and some are, but we really need a bigger push, then I think we really have a good chance of, of, of being able to have food that, that is produced within the planetary boundaries. Mm. And then the next question is, how can we get our consumers to, 
to see the value in that, right? I really like the fact that you highlighted that it's even within one business. It is not homogenous amongst all the farms that just happen to uh, grow almonds or soya in a certain area. And the metabolic process or your process for picking up on those nuances farm on farm to make sure that it rolls out in a way that suits the local conditions or the, the farmer's soil themselves, did that involve you going to each farm and would you go and talk to the farmer, take tests? How did you kind of go about pulling that together? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, we didn't personally go to these farms, but we work with Alpro suppliers and they have their agronomists and their, their scientists soil scientists and um, we basically made a really long list of things that we wanted to know about what was going on there um, mm-hmm. and then um, they went off and they got this information for us. In the second part, working with the farmers for the, for the shift, we've been there, uh, we go there and because this, so the, the first part is really a very technical understanding of what's going on. We get a lot of information, a lot of data. We process this data with different models and really be able to say, okay, this is what the context looks like. But actually, when it gets into the how do you uh, how do you do something about this, we don't necessarily need to have a deeply technical approach to this. We kind of know the things that you can do to make mm. farming and agriculture better, right? But the, what's what's the barrier to this is on the one hand economic things, on the other hand social things. It's there's people. There are people, and people have their livelihoods and they take on risk and they are struggling to stay above water. When it comes to how do we respond to these environmental challenges, it very quickly becomes a people project. Mm. Um, uh, Working with Alpro, working with the farmers to understand things, to understand who's paying for things, who's taking the risk on. How can we design the relationship between the suppliers and the company in such a way that the the suppliers feel supported in this? Um, So in in that part, then, we're, we're in, a Spain, in Spain a bit uh, to work with them. Mm, we find exactly the same thing in our work, Brian, and I love talking to um, practitioners in this space. So, mm. we, you know, we find um, absolutely it comes down to people, um, the little bits that are going on in the system that aren't quite working, that are a bit crooked and not circular. It comes mm. down to handling or pay rates or relationships or assumptions, um, you know, relationships over time um, with the land or with how we should handle. I know when I looked at one food waste issue that was reliant on people sorting apples and actually it came down to the workers just felt so undervalued and so underpaid mm-hmm. and yet it was, it, the you know, the buck stopped with them to sort it. Um, and so whether they decided the apple went left or right was up to them, um, and hence huge amounts of food waste was was created in that organisation. Um, so yes, the data is you know super important to understand the numbers, but I find just seeing that and talking to to people on the ground is so valuable. Absolutely. Are you ready to transition your business from linear to circular? Whether you want to design out waste, reduce your emissions, or even explore the nature of your sustainability story, we're here to help. Let our circular innovation partners and design strategists guide you towards extraordinary innovative outcomes. Our circular projects tackle your biggest challenges, embed circular thinking into your organisation, connects you to solutions that exist and creates them when they don't. For the benefit of your business, customers, communities and stakeholders. To help build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. Get in touch today and together let's redesign everything. Head to Circularity dot co dot nz
Something that has been happening in New Zealand is part of the government has created a report what comes out of the Climate Change Commission around pretty much where New Zealand needs to head. And the circular economy was really front and centre in many of mm. the recommendations. And we, we constantly are looking at the EU model around that circular economy action plan and really keen to mm-hmm. understand from, from the perspective of showing businesses the value of engaging in this. How does that EU plan play on the minds of business? Are they going, okay, the EU has clearly signalled here that we need to change and that it's going to continue to cost us more to operate in a linear way or is it more subtle than that? It's, it's a couple of different there's that sort of headline regulatory, okay, there's some new rules coming down the, down the line and we need to respond to these to make sure that we're business ready, let's say, regula- regulation ready. But there's also how these different policies then have that yeah, slightly more sub- subversive shift in the system where, yeah, if different organizations working in different parts of the system are all responding, then there, you have this emergent uh, sort of property that comes out of that. And that's, I think the EU works quite well in this way. Maybe a better example for me, which is because it's a bit longer implemented in the Netherlands, they also have a circular economy policy. And there, each of the provinces and, and cities are required to have a, a circular economy plan mm. um, and to reduce their environmental impact through circular economy practices by a certain year. That's not too far away. And what you see is a massive response um, from the smallest village to the biggest cities and, and the biggest provinces where they say, OK, well, we need to understand what this means for us and how can we be more circular across all of our systems? What are the systems we should be focused on in the building sector, the agricultural sector, whatever, um, even how we manage water? How can this be done more uh, in a more circular way? And once the, once the state responds in this way and really signals to the private sector, and also to communities that we're, we're serious about this and we're moving forward, then you see the whole system start to shift. And that really creates a lot of opportunities. It also channels a lot of money uh, into the process as well. It's the signal from the public sector through policies, but also having that trickle down at every level of the public sector. And then that kind of creates the environment for the, for the private sector then to, to act on this. One of the really interesting ways that the public sector can do this, it's really simple and something we always push for them to do, is like, look how you're acting yourself as an organization, right? You're a, if you're a municipality and you're, you're delivering the management of this, this village or town or city or whatever, that connection you have to the, to the area and how things happen, but also look internally to yourself. How do you run? How is your procurement? How is your energy procurement? How do you treat your waste? What sort of conditions do you look for in your contract uh, with your waste management, with your energy? Um, and lead by example in this way. What do the canteens serve that all of your staff are eating at? What do your schools serve? What do your prisons serve? What do your hospitals serve? Mm. You know, maybe we can serve less meat. Maybe we can source local ingredients. Maybe we can have more fresh greens. You know, if you want to use food as health, if you want people to eat better, then also supply the people that are working within your organization with better food. And this really has that knock-on effect because you start to change the way people within the organization are thinking about things, not just, you know, the organizations and the citizens that they're touching. So I think this is, this is a really powerful um, activity that, that, um, that the public sector can follow, leading by example. 
That's brilliant advice there, Brian. I want to shift gear a little bit because something I was so fascinated to read about in terms of your transdisciplinary approach is you're a member of the Freiburg Scientific Theatre, something I'd Mm. never heard of, where you use theatre to promote and facilitate this kind of dialogue. How does it work? Yeah, so I I spent some time in Freiburg in Germany, and the idea was to actually communicate scientific issues um, through emotions. Um, And the point there is, right, it comes back to this consciousness thing. The point is that we want to um, have this important scientific information uh, understandable and digestible to people, to whatever stakeholders you have. And you can hand somebody a report or you can show them a nice graphic or visualization. But if you can touch people emotionally, use art and performance um, to connect to people's emotions, then there's a different, the information is received in a different way, right? So this was kind of the genesis of it. And so how it works is indeed through performance and, or workshops. Generally, it's about going into uh, organizations, going to conferences, going to business events. And it, it's quite fun. You, you look at, it's a, it's a highly adaptive thing. We don't have a particular play that we roll out, but it's rather about saying, okay, well, what's this organization about? What's this conference about? What's this event about? And how can we then hold the mirror up to the people here and, and look at some of the, let's not say hypocrisies, but some of the more interesting nuances about them um, to get people to think a different way about things. Um, and then we build a play around that. It's usually not an interactive play. It's a play that we perform quite short. And then afterwards, we have sort of a reflection section. Yeah, the idea is really to, to, to shift the, the energy and shift the perspectives a little bit. So I immediately go to, um, have you had Leonardo DiCaprio do this? <laughs> or have you asked him if he can come and perform? Because I just love the idea of it and how do we elevate that? I just think it's fantastic. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, no, we haven't, we haven't yet, not yet, but it's, uh, maybe we'll reach out to him on Instagram. <laughs> I, I, well, you've, you've chosen the right social media tool there, Brian, so you're obviously all over that one. At Circularity, we help businesses unlock the circular economy opportunity. We're driven by the belief that together we can create a thriving economy within our planetary boundaries. This podcast has been designed to connect a community of passionate changemakers on a mission to achieve this. We would so appreciate if you could review and share this podcast. The more ears who hear it, the faster we can initiate the change. For more information on what we do here at Circularity, head to circularity.co.nz. For one thing that we'd love to highlight and to dig deeper into, and I'm going to say the name wrong, but it's De Quivel? De Suivel. De Coval. De Coval. There we go. There we, we, would go. Never, we would never have got that. It's an award-winning, sustainably planned workplace for creative and social enterprises on a former shipyard in Amsterdam North. Founded in 2012, and the land was secured on a 10-year lease from the municipality of Amsterdam Mm. after a group of architects won a tender to turn the site into a regenerative urban oasis. And so I'm I'm assuming this is kind of part of that uh, Netherlands scheme that you talked about. And it would be awesome if you could share with us some of that agri-tech and systems at play at the site that I guess shows the world what's possible. Yeah, the Koval is uh, it's it's what we call a clean tech playground. The backstory is that uh, we had this abandoned shipyard, quite central in Amsterdam, in the north of Amsterdam, 
and um, it was heavily polluted. And so the municipality um, put out a tender to say, can somebody deal with this place? We'll give you a 10-year lease. Um, but part of it has to be remediating the area. And Metabolic and a, a bunch of other organisations came together to um, make a proposal about turning it into this sort of experimental playground where, you know, we know the city is interested in all these different technologies. So let's, you know, let's use it and let's use this area to experiment. Metabolic, by the way, one of its sort of founder stories is that it was working a lot with music festivals because music festivals are great examples of, of urban systems. You have energy, waste, construction, demolition, people, experiences all happening in a really intense way. So we've worked a lot with music festivals and different types of festivals to experiment with technology. So what if we you know, make the uh, waste more circular? What if we uh, build only with reusable materials? What if we construct things in a way that they can be deconstructed and reused, et cetera, et cetera. So this sort of experimental uh, thinking was then brought into this plan for the Coval. The, the, the basis for the plan is that the soil is so unbelievably polluted that we don't even want to dig it up. So we pulled houseboats up onto the soil and then we planted in between and around the houseboats uh, lots of different uh, willow and alder and these sorts of species. And so there's this phytoremediation process going on, so basically letting nature heal the soil by extracting these uh, nutrients and these minerals and these metals and cleaning it that way. And then we have all these houseboats and there's lovely walkways between houseboats. I really encourage everybody to Google the Coval um, and come visit in Amsterdam because it's, it's a really beautiful and impressive place. In these houseboats, then there's different businesses. Uh, there's people making burgers from seaweed. There's, you know, uh, people making music. There's architects. Um, but they also have their own waste treatment and water collection systems. They all also all have their own energy systems, uh, through, either through solar panels or other means. And then we have a, a sort of a, a DLT technology, like a blockchain, let's say, which allows all the different boats uh, to exchange energy between them, depending on who's producing and who's demanding it at a given time. We have a biorefinery uh, where we have different types of composters and filters and pumps and struvite reactors um, to, to take all of the waste and process it and then produce resources which can be reused. And we have a huge greenhouse which is actually built on top of two boats, so it's up in the air, um, and there we have an aquaponic system. And in the greenhouse, we produce loads of herbs um, and, and green edibles, which go into the cafe. There's a vegan cafe there, which then serves people these things. And it's all connected. It's all about exchanging resources. We biogas boat. And really to show, you know, at this very, very local scale, you can really build these systems, which, which build in resilience, which allow for exchange, and which allow for uh, return on the exchange. You know, you can collect tokens. Uh, through supplying another boat with energy, and you can spend these tokens uh, within the within the community at the uh, at the cafe or whatever. It's now gone through a sort of a second generation. We we received um, funding from the European Commission through a project called Food E, and actually we've spent the last year um, rebuilding the the aquaponic system. So now we've got a really super high tech aquaponic system. Um, and in the greenhouse. And it, this is now not really so much about like how much food can we produce here, but it's actually about let's um, open this up and really structurally um, use it to, to show local kids and local people, local students, um, what can be done. What does urban agriculture actually look like um, and how productive it can be and how beautiful it can be. And the place has really turned into this amazing community centre 
in the summertime, it's obviously being a shipyard right on the water uh, where you can go swimming, really continuing to be this sort of holistic community centre uh, for the local area and really adapting. And right, you build in the complexity in the system, which also makes it adaptive in this way. It's not a single purpose place, but it's really fulfilling all these different uh, functions, um, which allows it to be that. It's also about five minutes down the road from our office. And we call it our spiritual home. Um, so a Friday, Friday evening, if you're in a, ever in Amsterdam and you want to meet anybody from Metabolic, uh, you'll find us down there drinking beer um, and hanging out after, after a week's work. A well-earned, well-earned drink. And <laughs> yeah. we spoke before a bit about demonstrating what's possible. We know that there's lots of people that want to live or work in this way but wouldn't even know where to start. So... You know, having such a clear-cut example of what's possible, have you seen other places pop up inspired by De Quirville? That's a good question. I think it's been really in its in its strength for probably about five years, and it, it's coming up time and time again uh, in examples of of interesting places to visit. Actually, Prince Harry was there last year uh, with Meghan because they had a they have this initiative to promote sustainable tourism, and they came to Amsterdam and then went to Decauville to look at what this could look like. So while I can't think of specific examples of, you know, uh, other urban agriculture and clean tech areas that have popped up inspired by Decauville, I think that, you know, the systemic impact of, of these sorts of initiatives um, take time um, and, and sort of are maybe not that, that sort of traceable. We do actually, now that I think about it, have... So if we think about Decauville as this, this like clean tech playground. It's very raw, right? It's not like a, it looks like a music festival or something, which is part of the attraction. But the technology that's been built into this has now been adopted by a second generation of it nearby in a, in a scheme called Schoonskip, which means clean ship. And that's a community of floating houses. So this is, they're not about producing food and these sorts of things, but it's about like using that technology. We have a housing crisis in the Netherlands, as we do in lots of places, so they're building like crazy. And the third generation of this type of technology is is going into Bouk Sloterham, where you have now instead of individual houseboats, second generation scone skip is these floating houses. And the third generation is is this is working between apartment blocks. So you have these big multi-story apartment blocks going up, which are also generating their own energy um, and treating their own water and waste and these sorts of things. So that sort of systemic impact of something like the Coval, I guess, is there without it being about new decovals popping up. Mm. I definitely think that we need to create a little sister city project yes. with Tecovo. Mm. Um you, you had me on the bear at the, at the end of the work, <laughs> working week, Brian, uh, obviously, and also all the fabulous stuff about, you know, amazing clean tech and, and sharing resources. But we've got it, you know, like most cities, uh, we all have that industrial-based land. You know, we've got a big port area in Auckland, um, which, you know, the oil tankers used to come in, and in fact, I still think they probably do, and fill fill up down there. And all the land is mm. being being reclaimed. So a wonderful opportunity, which I, I would hope to take up. But just thinking about the New Zealand economy, 
in particular, and I, I, I really feel like I'll miss a trick just, you know, by not asking you this question because of your level of expertise. We've got so much of our economy, at least half of it is based on primary industry. So whether it's forestry or food production, you probably know we're known for our dairy. We export mm. heaps, <laughs> a lot, of very high quality. It mostly ends up on commodity markets. There's a few brands that have filtered through. But there is a massive drive to shift to regenerative practices and there's you know various enablers in the economy that are starting out. But we really do lack the policy change to make this scalable. At the moment, it's being funded by businesses and by startups who are moving in this space. I haven't given you heaps of information on that, but I just wonder what your reflective thoughts on that would be, given that gap in policy change. I think dairy is a really interesting case study for a number of different reasons. Um, Obviously, the, I'm Irish. Obviously, we also have a, a strong dairy sector, export sector there as well, and the Netherlands as well. But dairy is also mm, comes under a lot of fire. Let's put mm. it like that. And uh, New Zealand is really the world leader in dairy tech, in in, in really um, dealing with environmental issues, but also pushing efficiency and these sorts of things. I read an interesting report recently from a, a think tank called Rethink X. And it's called disrupting the cow. And this was the this was a question of um, alternative protein production. And you know, through bio uh, fermentation, there's a pathway in front of us for how dairy equivalent proteins can be bio fermented, right, and done at scale. And I think if we think from a policy perspective, you have this huge industry generating a lot of jobs, generating a lot of wealth for the economy. How should we think about this industry in 2030? or 2050, what's it going to look like? Thinking about how technology might catch up and disrupt it. And then how, how do we want to facilitate the dairy industry and all the people, the good people working in the dairy industry and the farmers and the landscapes in New Zealand? How do we want to facilitate them responding to any sort of disruptive technologies that might happen? Because it's easy to say that, you know, cows through burping are delivering a lot of uh, methane and, and, and climate change and these sorts of things. But actually, you know, animals are also part of the circular economy, right? You talked earlier about farming pre-green revolution being truly circular. There was no waste. And animals are a really important part of that. And they, they, they manage landscapes for us and they provide these different materials and services. So how can we think about it? Um, I think that there's going to be a split with dairy. And I'm, I'm not fully answering your question now, but what I see is more high-value artisanal produce coming out of uh, dairy such as cheeses and these sorts of things that can be locally consumed, that are connecting to local traditions, that are preserving local cultures and and actually being generated by local cultures. The the sort of export stuff which goes into the commodity market, which goes into proteins and milk powder and these sorts of things, this is probably quite ripe for disruption. So how can the the New Zealand government, the Irish government, the Dutch government, who are really reliant on their their dairy sectors, prepare for this? How can they... uh, invest and support um, smaller businesses which are going to be able to be more adaptive to these things. Um, this, these are the sorts of questions that I would be asking. And it's really about recognizing the additional value that dairy farming or any sort of farming can really create for the local economy and in- incentivizing these rather than really looking at, like, how can we max out on production and efficiency and then, you know, export uh, commodities, which then basically just go into a big soup of products. Um, which is high quality, but sort of invisible and not connected at all 
to the people or to the places in New Zealand um, that are producing them. Mm, I think that was a great answer, Brian. I think you, you nailed it. At the end of the day, it is about value creation. And I think at that at the heart you know, of that principle of, of the circular economy about keeping materials in flow and at the highest value, that value creation out of those materials is, is super important. And how do we create value? And I think you're right. It's who made it, the provenance, the transparency around it, the culture and the story that's created and the value that gets returned to those people so that they can build that land up in that way. Um, and then, yeah, you're right, on this other side is this commodity level, which is so rife for disruption. There's another way of de- delivering that, right? Mm-hmm. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Circularity, a team of passionate circular strategists working with a new breed of businesses. They don't see today's challenges as someone else's problem or the solutions as a utopian vision. Simply put, that is why we're here, to help build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. If you are wanting to level up your impact and are looking for a partner to support that journey, consider our advisory services. Get in touch via our website, circularity.co.nz. Awesome. So we've asked you so many questions. So we always give the people we host a chance to flip the Q&A and ask a question for us. You guys, I think, actually are doing a lot of the same work that we're doing. And it's really nice to be able to talk to you and exchange and like you said, I feel like I've done, been doing a lot of talking. So, you know, I'd like to hear from you guys what you see as the most interesting developments in the circular economy in New Zealand, an area, a country where I don't, you know, know too much about. I haven't visited yet. So what's going on that, there that's really inspiring you? So of all the things that have sort of come across our desk, a number of the kind of low-hanging fruit waste conversations have popped up with circular economy work, right? So packaging's kind of turned up building and construction, things like that. But the biggest shift that we've just noticed recently, which excites us the most, is the waste-to-wealth opportunity for the primary industries. And it picks up on that conversation we started having there, Brian, about New Zealand's industries, how each sector develops products, where they go on what markets and what levels they operate in. And we generate quite a significant amount of waste that contribute to emissions out of the food and primary sectors. So there's a big interest in how circular economy principles can completely transform those industries and how we can create new products out of the waste streams, um, particularly around seafood and aquaculture. Obviously, we're a country surrounded by ocean. We've got some very significant and sustainable food um, systems playing out there. We've got some incredible tech that's playing out in open ocean aquaculture farms. But still, it's once we bring those back, there's a high degree of waste that plays out in that system and how do we generate really high value products out there so that's probably Mm. what are you seeing there Ella so the first thing that my mind jumped to was something that I think is going to happen in the short to midterm because you know obviously in the long term we want to design out waste and keep materials in high value Um, but I'm seeing lots of young people and specifically underserviced populations of young people waking up to some of those interim green growth opportunities. Parts of of councils and cities are saying, actually, we can set up really high-efficiency recycling centres. I know a a couple of young guys that started a waste management company and they created some of the first uh, food waste collection. So I think young people are really tuning in to 
the waste to wealth opportunities. And I, I think it's awesome because I, I talk to some people younger than myself who are coming out of schools and they their mindset is so different that they are able to stand back and see the opportunities instead of seeing the, the way problems. they've always done things, you know, being mm-hmm. disrupted. They're really the ones that are like, oh, totally, this is how things should be. I'm going to go start a business in this or I'm going to go and campaign to realise that value. Sounds like a revolution. It's viva la revolution, you know? <laughs> We've got a revolution going on here. Yeah. We need yeah. some, we need some no, that, Irish to join us. That's really great. No, I mean, I, it, it, it's a bit of a cliche, right? But the, I'm also so inspired by the youth. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately clinging on to my own youth <laughs> Me um, too. myself. But um, you can also hear the next generation of youth crying in the background. So I, I hope that's not too noisy uh, for everybody. But yeah, it's how do we create the environment for, for the youth to be inspired? How can we allow them have uh, these opportunities? And, you know, what's going on there and what can we learn from that? You know, on a consciousness level, why are young people so innovative and so fearless in these things? And how can we, you know, who are stuck in our own little pads, uh, how can we really um, learn from that and, and, and be inspired by them? I think this is like such a powerful, untapped resource rather than just waiting for them to take over, which is kind of what happens naturally. But like, how can we also proactively learn from young people and the youth and, and change with them? Yeah, definitely. And that's a really good lead into our last question for the podcast, Brian, which is if you could inspire other change makers, perhaps the youth coming through, by giving them one piece of advice through your experiences, what would you want them to know? What I have found quite helpful and what I see as being helpful um, in other people uh, who are really trying to drive change is, is having a healthy level of um, playful disruption in what you do. You know, often we have to stand in front of these corporate partners who are really important partners in this. They're really stuck or set in their ways a lot of the time. And they're set in this own mindset, also policymakers, whoever really people are all on our own paths. And I think if you can bring a sort of innovative, disruptive energy to these conversations, this is something that's really helpful to show people something that's, that's possible that they don't really see themselves. So I always encourage people to not take things overly seriously. So be a bit playful and enjoy what you're doing. But don't be afraid to challenge and don't be afraid to push uh, whoever it is that you're talking to to think a little bit more and with more ambition, to think a little bit more creatively about what you're doing. And because the challenge is huge, right? It's really huge. And the urgency is um, never more than it's been right now huge systemic change that we need that the circular economy is driving us and we need to be really brave and we need to be really ambitious um, so I always would, would ask and advise and hope that everybody um, can go into this uh, with that sort of bravery and their heart in their sleeve and, and being inspiring for everybody that they're talking to Words to live by as Ella would say Thank you so much, Brian. That was the most fantastic session with you. You shared so many insights about the work that you're doing. Um, We've just loved having you on the show and really appreciate you fitting us in all the way from Amsterdam. And a funny funny anecdote to leave you on, um, Brian, I don't know if you've Googled yourself before, but when you search Brian Shaw Metabolic, the world's strongest man is actually called Brian Shaw. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about his metabolic syndrome that he's developed. (laughs) From his 12,000 daily calorific intake diet. Is that the Brian yeah, Shaw we're talking yeah. about? <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. That's my, Did we that's get my the... inner child. 
It happens time. Occasionally, people tell me about my 12,000 uh, calorie intake. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it ha- it's them, happened but... before. It's not a first time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would be alive if I was eating this many calories. <laughs> Friends, thank you so much for joining us today and a big thank you to our guest and our fantastic team producing the redesign of everything. For more information about Circularity, the work that we do and how we can help your organisation, head to circularity.co.nz or find us on our social media channels listed in the show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And until next time, let's redesign everything. 